This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 265. So today is Sunday, July 31st, 2022, and I'm covering the news stories, photography-related news stories that caught my eye this week and thought they were worthy of sharing. And there are some rumors in here as well from the four rumor sites. But first, let's head on over to Petapixel and see what we have. Photographer creates DIY telescope to snap incredible photos of the moon. A photographer has used his 3D printer to create an impressive 900 millimeter reflector telescope that is so simple to put together, it's like assembling furniture from IKEA. The design, which Jonathan Kissner refers to as Hadley, has a 114 by 900 millimeter reflector with a spherical primary mirror housed in mostly 3D printed parts. Kistner also says that his Hadley telescope can do double duty as a terrestrial scope for watching wildlife and even as slow as F8 zoom lens for photography. Kistner takes images through the, teles- uh, through the telescope with a Google Pixel 4a mobile phone. To combat the atmospheric turbulence that wreaks havoc on long exposure images, he opted to shoot a video at 60 frames per second. Quote, any given frame was worse than what we'd see at the eyepiece, Kistner tells Petapixel. Our brain does a lot of work making sense from a noisy image and composing, uh, compositing on the fly. This process, called lucky imaging, can produce results far beyond what the eye sees, but this needs better data. Eventually, I'll be using an AstroCam with the 3D printed telescopes, but one step at a time. Once saved, Kistner imports the videos he captures into an app called the Planetary Imaging Preprocessor, or PPIP, and then aligns them with another called Registax. Both are freeware available online. Then after some more image processing using GIMP, he ends up with a usable image that is worthy of sharing online. And there are some beautiful images of the moon you can find in this article in the show notes. Kistner hopes to have a camera attached design for future use. He also has another telescope design on his site, as well as a focuser and a Newtonian mirror cell for a reflector telescope. Kistner decided to create his DIY telescope due to the plethora of what he calls hobby killer scopes in the $100 to $200 range that are difficult to use with shoddy parts. Quote, it is my hope that by releasing this, more people will find an open door to planetary ob- observation and entry-level astrophotography, wrote Kistner on his printables build, blo- uh, build blog. Hadley is actually his second attempt at 3D printing a workable telescope. His first one was more of a pathfinder to, re- to refine his design. That scope was much larger, being a 152 by 1300 millimeter large red reflector telescope that Kistner admits was very hard to build. However, with the lessons learned in that design, he was able to create a universal design that was both accessible and practical while being easy to replicate. The basic design is centered around parts that are printed on a standard FDM 3D printer. 
Each model has been positioned in its strongest orientation and without the need for wasteful supports, which can add time and cost to the prints. There are a total of 27 different parts to 3D print. The design also uses one kind of screw in varying lengths and nuts to keep things simple, and according to Kistner, either metric or imperial works. The biggest challenge for Kistner was the mirror itself. A traditional parabolic mirror found in large telescope arrays would have been prohibitively expensive for a telescope this size. But Kistner found that with the focal length he was going for and its ratios, a spherical mirror was more cost-effective stand-in. Kistner also discovered in his research that many commercial built scopes make a similar compromise. Kistner was able to find mirror sets for a 114 by 900 millimeter spherical primary and elliptical secondary pair on eBay or AliExpress for about $20. Although he said that this is prone to fluctuation. There is also a listing for similar mirror sets on Amazon. Add to that the $100 in printing materials and other parts, plus a good set of eyepieces for $50, and you have a pretty effective telescope for under $200. The complete list of parts and plans for building the telescope are available on printables. The design also lends itself to customizations with add-on starburst effects, including the six-spike style of the new James Webb telescope, the four-spike style of the Hubble Space Telescope, or even a diffraction spike-free look. Well, Jonathan, for my two cents, I must say that I'm extremely impressed, and your design looks fabulous. It's really awesome that you were able to come up with such a practical design after only a couple of attempts, and now you have a working telescope for astrophotography. I think that's fantastic. I love the opportunity to create new things with my 3D printer. Although I haven't used it since we moved to Roxborough, I got it out one day and was going to try to print some stuff with it, but the nozzle's all gummed up from it sitting, and I haven't had time to tear it apart yet to clean it properly. It takes quite a bit of work to do that. I'm hoping to get that done at some point, and I also want to eventually get a bigger, more advanced 3D printer that can do at least two different color plastics at a time, if not maybe upgrade to one of the ones that can do four colors at a time. That would be absolutely phenomenal. But to you, Jonathan, my hat is off to you, sir. What a clever, clever idea. How to take your passport photo at home in 2022. A passport is almost always a necessity when traveling outside your country, and a photograph is required along with identity documents, filling out a form, and paying a fee when applying. The photograph is potentially the most challenging part of the process. The good news is the photo can be taken and printed at home as long as careful attention is given to the rules. Here are the five basic rules of United States passport photos as stated on the State Department's website. 1. Submit a color photo taken in at least the last six months. Use a clear image of your face. Do not use filters commonly used on social media. Have someone else take your photo. No selfies. Take off your eyeglasses for your photo and use a plain white or off-white background. Now, in this article, we'll take an in-depth look at how you can shoot your own U.S. passport photos in the comfort of your own home or photo studio. So, the first thing you want to do is avoid common problems with passport photos. Several rules must be followed to have the best chance for a submitted U.S. passport photo to be approved. 
Since it can take quite some time for processing, it's best to get it right the first time to avoid long delays. Some of the most common problems have to do with the subject smiling broadly, turning slightly to one side more than the other, or being unevenly lit. Technical issues to avoid include having something other than white showing in the background, such as a shadow or other objects appear in the frame. The size of the subject is important, so is their facial expression. There are even rules about clothing. A picture must be no more than six months old at the time of submission for use as a passport photo. Now, for the equipment needed. A camera is needed, of course, and a passport photo can be taken with a modern smartphone or separate camera, either one. Recent models are typically good enough as long as there is sufficient lighting. The result should not be grainy, blurry, or pixelated. A viewer should not be able to see any pixels or printer dots. Naturally, a dedicated camera might produce even better photographic quality, and a sharp, well-exposed picture is best. Now, a white background is necessary, which might require a large sheet of white paper if a white or off-white wall isn't available. If there isn't sufficient light in the room to light the subject and avoid shadows, some type of additional lighting will be needed. The end result is what matters, and specialized equipment is not necessary. So what kind of background is needed for a passport photo? Well, preferably a perfectly white backdrop, but it isn't necessary. However, it is best to use white or off-white wall or a white paper backdrop that's free from shadows. A paper roll or a large sheet of poster board are commonly used backgrounds. Paper can be taped or tacked to a wall to avoid folds and wrinkles. A light might be needed for the background to remove any shadows and nothing else should be visible in the cropped picture that is submitted. A foamed back project board is a nice solution since it's large enough to fill the background without feeling cramped for space when taking the photo. Since a project board is rigid, it can stand upright on a table. Now, there is the importance of good lighting. It's very important to take extra time when arranging the lighting. The subject should not have any shadows at all. The background should also be free from shadows. This might require separate lights to be used for the background to eliminate a shadow cast by the subject. Now, using a flash is an easy way to eliminate shadows on the subject, but can result in shadows in the background. A little trial and error might be needed to get good results, and this is probably the most time-consuming part of the process if professional lighting is not available. Now, the person being photographed should remove any hat, glasses, or facial obstruction. If a hat or glasses or head covering is part of a religious attire or required for a medical condition, that is acceptable, but a written document will have to be submitted along with the passport application attesting to this need. For medical purposes, a doctor's statement is required. Jewelry and piercings are gray areas and are allowed as long as they do not hide your face. Smiling in a passport photo is not allowed. However, it must be a natural, unexaggerated smile with both eyes open and a neutral expression is most likely to be accepted. The subject should face the camera so that both sides of the face are equally visible and the head should not be tilted. The only restriction on clothing is to avoid anything that looks like a uniform or camouflage attire. Taking passport photos of children might be more challenging. The child cannot be held or left in a stroller. If they cannot stand, the child can be lay, laid on a white background for a photograph. 
An infant's eyes do not have to be open for a passport or photograph, but all other rules still apply. Now, here are some technical tips. The camera shouldn't be too close. If the distance between the subject and the camera is too small, the face may be distorted and different from what the person looks like in real life. This is presumably one of the reasons a selfie is not allowed as a passport photo, as selfies are typically shot from arm's length. A good rule of thumb is that the camera should be at least four feet away. A portrait lens is helpful using a focal length suited for portraiture around 85 millimeters on a full frame will be helpful, as you will be able to capture the correct composition from a suitable distance. A wide-angle lens from the same distance will require you to crop, possibly leading to suboptimal image quality, while a more telephoto lens will require the photographer to stand further away, and there may, be, may not be enough space to do so. A basic two-light setup works well. So if you're going to use artificial lighting, the U.S. government recommends a simple two-light setup with diffused light on each side of the subject, evening out the shadows. And there is a diagram in this article in the show notes. Use a smaller aperture. Shooting wide open with a fast lens may lead to too shallow a depth of field, causing some parts of the subject's head to be out of focus. Using a smaller aperture i.e. a larger F number so that the depth of field is sufficiently wide to render all of the subject is in acceptably sharp focus. Use the lowest ISO that you can. Setting your sensor sensitivity as low as you can with the available lighting you have will minimize the amount of noise in a photo. Rule states that photos must be sharp without dots. Use a faster shutter speed. Make sure your shutter speed is fast enough to capture the subject without any kind of camera or motion blur. And strobes should help with that. Use a tripod and a shutter release. For extra sharpness, use a tripod and shutter release to stabilize your camera and take camera shake out of the equation. Fixing your camera will also provide more consistent results and fewer variables to deal with when setting up your photo. So what size is a passport photo? Well, the dimensions of a United States passport photo are exactly two inches wide by two inches tall, and the subject's head should occupy a size that is one to 1.4 or one and three eighths inches when printed. Head size is measured from the top of the head to the bottom of the chin. It's best to use an app or a website service to help with sizing and positioning. However, it can be done with a photo editing app that shows units in inches or pixels. When printing at the standard 300 dots per inch, one inch is equal to 300 pixels, and 1.4 inches is 420 pixels. It's important to be aware of where the subject is positioned within the viewfinder. Of course, centering side to side is required. One of the most difficult alignments is the top to bottom placement. The bottom of the eye should be near the center of the frame, Small positioning errors can be corrected when cropping the photo. The easiest way to get the size and position correct is to use the photo tool that is available on the Department of State's website. The U.S. Government, or U.S. Department of State, excuse me, Bureau of Consular Affairs has quite a bit of information about passport photos as well as a free web app photo tool. The tool makes it easy to upload a photograph that is of good quality and well lit for help with sizing and cropping. After loading the photo tool, the user should click Upload Photo button to open a file browser and select a picture to upload for cropping. 
A very basic analysis of the uploaded picture is performed with the USDOS photo tool, and it warns of photos that are too small or overly compressed. But this tool cannot officially validate a picture. The user still must use their own judgment about the finer details. Along the right side, there are several guidelines presented in pictorial form. For example, clicking the glasses section opens a view of four examples of photos that were all rejected because the subject was wearing glasses. The USDLS photo tool attempts to automatically crop the image that has been uploaded and if successful, allows the user to accept and proceed, then download a JPEG that is ready to print. If the automatic cropping fails or if their framing seems wrong, the user can choose to crop manually. A tutorial appears that shows how to use the tool. In short, the user should drag each red-colored eye icon that's below the photo over the subject's eyes. When finished with the tutorial, clicking Close Tutorial returns to the uploaded photo where the subject's eyes can be identified. It's also possible to zoom and rotate a photograph in 90-degree increments in case it appears sideways when uploaded. After both eye icons are in position, the photo tool will show a preview of the crop image. Adjustments can be made to the eye icons and the crop will immediately be recalculated. When satisfied with the cropping, the user can click accept and proceed, then download the image to your device to save the JPEG file for printing. Now, what about passport photo apps and websites? There are several passport photo apps, and some might be great. However, care should be exercised if using an app to assist with this process. Digitally altering a picture is not allowed, and in the description of several of these apps, there are mentions of cleaning up the background. The U.S. Department of State specifically forbids changes like this. While subtle exposure and white balance adjustments to compensate for lighting conditions are acceptable, artificially erasing the background to make it perfectly white or altering the subject, even to correct red-eye effects from a flash, are not permitted. Also, it should be noted that an app might be developed for rules that are applicable to other countries or could have out-of-date information. It's best to use the government website for official specifications. So how do you print and cut a passport photo? While a passport photo can be printed at home, care should be taken to make sure the quality of the print and the paper are sufficient. Most inkjet and color laser printers should be up to the task if they are considered photo printers. The paper should be marked as photo paper and can be either matte or glossy. Most important is to make sure the final print is not blurry, grainy, or pixelated. When in doubt, a commercial print service can relieve any concern about this step, and most office stores and big box stores offer high-quality photo printing. Many print services accept photos that are emailed or uploaded, and the print can be mailed back, which saves a trip out of, uh, out of the house. Now, self-service machines are also available, making it easy to print a photo without relying on a home printer. Since the picture itself is quite small, it makes sense to print multiple copies of the image on a single sheet with a photo editing app. Now, after printing, the photograph must be cut precisely to the 2 inch by 2 inch dimensions required, and the edges should be straight. Now, this is fairly easy to do with scissors, but a guillotine-style paper cutter or edge trimmer works best since they create perfectly straight cuts. The head should be centered horizontally and vertically when finished. If multiple photos were printed on the sheet, there's an opportunity to try again if a cut is misaligned. 
So can you take your own passport photo? While it might be technically possible to achieve a photograph that meets every other requirements of a passport photo without the help of another person, the official rules actually require someone else to take the picture. Remote triggers and timers would allow the photographer to get into position, but the preview image shown in the camera's viewfinder provides instant feedback for quick adjustments that might be needed to improve the photograph or avoid some problems. So in conclusion, it's relatively easy to take a U.S. passport photo at home and many people already have everything that's needed to do so. Taking the time to double-check the rules before snapping a picture and reviewing the quality, lighting, and subject afterward increases the chance that the photo won't be rejected. It can take quite some time for passport applications to be processed, and often there is a backlog, so it's important to make sure a good photo is included with any submission, as well as the form and any medical and religious documentation necessary for special considerations in the subject's photo. With an eye for detail and quality, a passport photo taken at home can be very convenient, saving time and money. All of the official rules are available at the USDOS website. Most of these tips are applicable to passport photos in other countries, such as the UK. Check with your country's government website for relevant rules and specs. So this is a great story, and that's why I wanted to share it with everybody today. Now, I disagree. I believe it's extremely possible to get a good passport photo doing the work all by yourself. And the reason why I say that is because many of the mirrorless and DSLR cameras today have a fully articulating flip-out screen. So you could flip the screen out, rotate it around, so you could see the rear LCD while you're composing your passport photo. So you'd be able to see everything in real time on the screen and make your adjustments accordingly. So I think it'd be extremely easy to do it yourself at home. Now, the printing part might be a little bit of a pain in the butt in the cropping as well. That's why I've actually never honestly had a passport. Uh, the only times I've ever traveled to foreign countries were either when I was in the military and didn't need a passport or after uh, before I was in the military, my dad and I went to Canada one time. And back in those days, pre 9-11, you could get across the Canadian border with just your U.S. driver's license and nothing more. So I thought I'd share this with you. For me personally, I think if and when I do decide to go get a passport and I might need it for my current IT job, I think I'll just go to someplace like the U.S. Post Office and pay them to do the proper photograph for me. It may not be cheap, but at least you know it'll be done right the first time so you don't have to worry about it being rejected. <laughs> Astrophotographer captures 107-hour exposure of the eye of God. An astrophotographer has taken 107-hour-long exposure of the Helix Planetary Nebula known as the Eye of God, officially dubbed NGC 7293. The nebula is a nearby cloud of gas and dust located in the constellation Aquarius. Quote, I work for an amateur and public astrophotography-focused observatory known as Deep Sky West, which gets me access to a lot of equipment and a lot of pristine skies. Matherine tells Petapixel, That image came from multiple years of shooting the Helix Nebula and the Eye of God. Connor Matherine has been capturing the nebula for years, steadily getting better and better images of the phenomenon as the technology has improved. He uses a Microline FLI ML16200 camera designed for astrophotography. 
The camera was attached to a TOA-150 telescope with an AP-1600 mount, plus what Masnerine terms a bunch of other odds and ends. The ML-16200 is a full-frame camera with a 16-megapixel on semi-KAF-16200 CCD-type image sensor capable of capturing a 16-bit resolution of 4500 by 3600 with 6 micron pixels. It operates with a 43-millimeter shutter and dual capture settings of 2 megahertz and 12 megahertz. Matherning uh, spent two years capturing the nebula over 50 years each year to create an eye-catching masterpiece. In a way, this nebula is one that started my passion for the stars. Matherning continues, so I had to make sure it was a true stunner. No ordinary photo would do. The Eye of God is located about 650 light years from the Earth and is the closest representation of the phenomenon for astronomers to observe. In fact, it was the Eye of God that piqued Matherning's interest in astro uh, or in astronomy. Ever since seeing the silly email chain all those years ago about the Eye of God, I've been in love with astronomy, he writes on Instagram. Matherney said on Instagram that the Eye of God Nebula is a preview of what will likely be the future of our own sun billions of years from now. Planetary nebulas form slowly around dying stars and much less violent and much more so a gentle shedding of the gas rather than a big kaboom of a more sudden supernova. Matherney is known as Cosmic Spec on Instagram where he posts his stellar observations for all to enjoy. He has captured dozens of other interesting astronomic observations, but he keeps coming back to NGC 7293. Quote, never thought I would see the day when I passed the big 100 in terms of exposure on a single astrophoto, Matherney concluded. What a milestone. It could not have been done to a more favorite target. And I must say, congratulations on your capture. It is absolutely stunning. But wow, 107 hours, that's a long time to get an exposure. These are the most famous photos of all time, according to a new study. New research has revealed the most famous photographs of all time, with NASA's iconic Man on the Moon photo from 1969's Apollo 11 mission topping the list. For the study, photo book and printing company InkFui used a reverse image search to show the significance and reach of images based on how often each photograph appeared on the Internet. The survey used Bored Panda's list of top 100 of the most influential photos of all time and the artistic list of the 10 most famous photographs of all time to calculate a definitive list. Then InkFui used Tiny Eyes reverse image search to find which photos return the most results and determine which images were the most famous. NASA's Man on the Moon photo was named the most famous, famous image of all time, followed by lunch atop a skyscraper, which showed 11 iron workers sitting on a steel beam 260 meters above the ground in Manhattan, New York City in 1932. The third most famous photograph of all time was Joe Rosenthal's flag raising on Iwo Jima, which was shot in 1949 towards the final stages of the Pacific War. Rosenthal's image became so iconic that it was cast as a 100-ton bronze memorial and twice made into a U.S. postage stamp in 1945 and 1995. The top 10 also included Steve McCurry's 1984 portrait, Afghan Girl, 
and the color Earthrise image of 1968 shot by Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders, which has been described as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. Also featured in Inkvi's list is Nick Utz, Napalm Girl, photograph from 1972, Dorothea Lang's 1936 portrait, Migrant Mother, Neil Leifer's 1965 boxing image of Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston, Einstein's birthday taken by Arthur Sass in 1951, and an image of the Wright Brothers' first flight from 1903. Digital Camera World reports that Inkfee's list may not accurately reflect the most famous images in the world, but should perhaps instead be referred to as the most replicated or most used images. In this light, Digital Camera World argues that the Apollo 11 image being at the top of the list might make more sense, as a lot of NASA images are public domain. Hence, this photograph has been used and repurposed a lot more frequently. It's also worth noting that the Associated Press relinquished its copyright to the photograph, placing it in the public domain. So what are your thoughts on this story? You can check it out in the show notes for this episode. I do agree that these uh, top 10 photographs are all very prolific photographs, especially the man on the moon one. That's always been one of my personal favorites, as well as number two, lunch atop a skyscraper and raising the flag on Iwo Jima. I think they're all absolutely amazing images, and so are the others that were mentioned in the top 10 by Dorothea Lange and others. All of them, in my opinion, are fantastically strong, well-composed images. Next up, Canon has pulled firmware update version 1.2.0 for the Canon R3 due to a bug. The bug is described on the DP Review Forum. Quote, the issue is that if you have version 1.2 on your camera and then perform a reset, the mode dial does not work properly and you cannot change between TV and AV or shutter and aperture priority and etc. If you have updated firmware to version 1.2.0 for the Canon EOS R3, do not reset until version 1.21 is released. Canon has always fixed these sorts of firmware bugs pretty quickly so I would expect an update very soon. And that's a bit of a bummer, especially because one of the big features in this firmware update was the ability for the R3 to shoot 195 frames per second. Now, that has a caveat to it, or a little bit of a catch. Even though it's considered 195 frames per second, you can only actually shoot about 50 photos in a single press of the shutter as a burst, and it takes nine seconds for it to write to the memory card. Now, I was listening to Raw Talk this past week, and Jared and Stephen were talking about this on their podcast, and Stephen said that in his testing, even if you set the camera to record JPEGs, it still took nine seconds for the buffer to clear, which is a little bit curious because being that JPEGs are much smaller than RAW files, you would think they would write to the memory card and dump out of the buffer much faster, like maybe in three seconds. But he said in all of his testing, JPEG, RAW, JPEG plus RAW, it always takes nine seconds for the buffer to clear, which to me seems a little bit unusual. I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. 
The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag liamphotopodcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Adorama has the new Canon EOS R10 with the RFS 18-45, F45-63 ISSTM in stock and ready to ship as a kit. Canon EOS R10 highlights capture sharp photos and video, full features, sleek design, capture fast-moving subjects, and brilliant detail. The Canon RFS 18-45, F45-63 ISSTM highlights compact size, standard zoom lens for everyday use, lead screw type STM, image stabilization at up to four stops of shake correction. And you can get this deal for $1,099 now at Adorama and have it shipped to you within a couple of days. New ebook, Capture One Hidden Features from Alex on Raw, discount code included. AlexOnRaw.com released a new ebook, Capture One Hidden Features, a collection of more than 200 pro hints to improve your Capture One workflow. The book comes in two formats, PDF and EPUB, and can be read on a tablet, laptop, or phone. You can download a, free a few free chapters at the accompanying link in this article in the show notes. This uh, ebook includes 200 plus pro hints to enhance your Capture One workflow. Capture One Hidden Features is a collection of 200 pro hints to improve your Capture One workflow structured into an easy-to-read book. This book was created for Capture One users who are familiar with all the essential features and are looking to discover advanced tools and workflow hints. Capture One Hidden Features comes in the two formats, a PDF and EPUB, so it's super convenient to read from your iPad, laptop, or phone. The book has already been acclaimed by the Capture One experts and industry professionals. You'll get three bonuses with the book, one dynamic symmetry grids for Capture One that allow you to evaluate composition faster, two, 10 styles for Capture One, three, five style brushes for Capture One. The full book includes 200 plus pro hints, 40 chapters, and 234 pages. You can get a discount of 10% on any book on Alex on Raw with the coupon code RUMORS. Now, the ebook does retail for $29.99, so with the 10% off, it's not too bad of a purchase. And being that I've switched to using only Capture One in my post-processing since I'm shooting all Fuji cameras now, I may have to pick this up. I've been using Capture One for quite a while, but I know darn well I haven't found all of the hidden advanced features that he talks about in this book. So I think I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of this for myself, and I will update you on it. And in a future episode, but I'm sure it's very high quality, especially if it's endorsed by Capture One themselves. That's pretty cool. Last chance to get one of the 11 Nikkor Z lenses before the price increase on August 1st. As previously reported, on August 1st, Nikon USA will increase the price of 11 mirrorless lenses and the new Nikon branded CF Express memory card. If you are planning to make a purchase before the price increase, please consider one of our sponsors. Now, this is from Nikon Rumors, Adorama, Amazon, B&H, Pulse Photo, and Service Photo. Here is the list of impacted lenses. 
Uh, let's see. Product number 20097, the Nikkor Z 14 to 24, F2.8S, old price 23.9995. New price will be 24.9995, so an increase of $100. 20089, the Nikon Z 24 to 70, F2.8S, old price 22.9995, new price 23.9995. 20091, the Nikkor Z 70 to 200, F2.8 VRS. 2599 will increase to 2699. 20083, the Nikkor Z 50 millimeter F1.8S will go from 599 to 629. The 20070 Nikkor Z 14 to 30 F4S will go from 1299 to 1349. The 20100 Nikkor Z MC 105 millimeter F2.8 VRS will go from 999 to $1,049. 20104, the Nikkor ZDX 18 to 140 millimeter F35 to 63VR will go from 599 to 639. 20110, the Nikkor Z 28 millimeter F2.8 SE will go from 299 to 309. 20109, the Nikkor ZDX 16 to 50 F35 to 63VR silver will go from 299 to 309. 20085, the Nikkor ZDX 50 to 250 millimeter F45 to 63 VR will go from 349 to 379. 20084, the Nikkor ZDX 16 to 50 F35 to 63 VR will go from 299 to 309. And the 27228 MC CF 660 gigabit or gigabyte CF Express memory card will go from 729 to 769. And that's on August 1st, folks. That's just a couple of days away as of this episode. So if you're going to get one of those items, you better snatch it now before the price increases in a couple of days. You have been warned. Now's the time to buy. New firmware updates for the Fujifilm X-H1, X-T200, X-T100, X-A7, and X-A5. Fujifilm has released new firmware updates for these cameras. You'll find all of the details in the download links below, and you can get them for yourself. Now, the firmware details, the Fujifilm X-H1 version 2.14, revised specifications from 2.13 to 2.14. One, even under busy Wi-Fi environment, the connectivity between the application for a smartphone, the Fujifilm camera remote, and a camera has been improved. The Fujifilm X-T200 version 1.16, The firmware bug has been fixed, which caused that the following phenomenon occurred rarely in combination with X-mount lenses from other manufacturers. When shooting with high-speed burst function at AFC setting, it becomes out of focus using Tamron 17-70 F2.8 Di3A VC RxD Alphabet Suit model B070 with the above models. When zooming from the T end of the W end to the T end of the W end, the hunting occurs in the preview screen, which affects movies as well as still photos recorded in this condition using the Tamron 18 to 300, F35 to 63, DI3A, VC, VXD, Alphabet Suit Model B061 with the above model. All other minor bugs have been fixed. Now, for the Fujifilm X-T100 version 2.03, one, the firmware bug has been fixed, which which caused that the following phenomenon occurred rarely in combination with X-mount lenses from other manufacturers. So it's the same information as from the X-T200. I won't go through it all again. Uh, The Fujifilm X-A7 version 1.33, 
Same issues with those Tamron lenses have been fixed in that firmware update. And the Fujifilm X-A5 version 2.03, all of the same issues with those same Tamron lenses have been corrected in that firmware update. So if you have any of those cameras, you might want to get that firmware update. Even if you don't own those Tamron lenses just yet, it's always a good idea to have the latest bug fixes on your camera. Fujifilm X-H2S reviews X-H2S trumps the Sony A1 video dynamic range is impressive. And you can order the X-H2S mirrorless camera at B&H Photo for $2,499. It's not available yet, but will be in stock soon. Cindy posted their technical results for the Fujifilm X-H2S, and it's quite a flattering one for this camera. And also, Gordon from Camera Labs tested the video side of the X-H2S after covering the photographic side, which we covered in a related article. And since we talk about the latest and greatest, in this mini roundup, I will add also reviews to the other two latest X-Gear items, the XF150-600, F5-6-8, and the XF18-120, F4. And you can purchase, you can order the X-H2S at B&H Photo, Amazon US, Adorama Moment, and Focus Camera. As far as lenses, uh, the XF18 to 120mm is a good zoom lens for photographers. There's an accompanying article on that. And photography blog, Fujifilm XF150 to 600, F5, 6 to 8, RLMOISWR review. For the Fujifilm X-H2S, as we said above, Cindy shared their Fujifilm test covering rolling shutter, dynamic range, and exposure latitude. In short, quote, the Fujifilm X-H2S definitely trumps C70 and even the Sony A1. While the five stops underexposed image looks almost as good with the Venice 2 and 4K ProRes HQ, and we are talking about a full-size cinema camera here. So a solid eight stops with additional wiggle room towards nine stops. That is quite impressive and is actually better than most of the recent full-frame consumer cameras. Good job, Fujifilm. The Fujifilm X-H2S fares really well for a consumer camera in our lab test, especially when considering that it's an APS-C camera and not full-frame. The rolling shutter performance is very good. The dynamic range results are impressive, as is the latitude test. It becomes clear from these results that the 14-bit sensor readout definitely is part of this good performance. So you could actually say it's a BMPCC 6K on steroids with a ton of additional features like IBIS and all the other advantages of a true hybrid camera, including a small form factor. You can read the full test at CINDY at the accompanying link in this article in the show notes. And they do have some official YouTube videos that you can check out in this article as well. So it sounds like the X-H2S is really a killer camera, and Fujifilm seems to have hit a home run with that bad boy. Congratulations, guys. New deal till August 12th. Save $125 on the entire Topaz Image Software Collection. Use the code RUMOR till August 12th, and you save $125 or euros on the entire Topaz Image Catalog. You can click the link in this article in the show notes. Note $100 default saving deal plus additional $25 off with our code. So you can get Denoise AI, Gigapixel AI, Sharpen AI, and all of their software. Well, that's what it includes, plus one year of unlimited upgrades for that discounted price. So 
If you've been thinking about buying the Topaz Lab software, now is the time to pull the trigger. And last up for this week, surprise, Sony manager says the ZV-E10, quote, had the largest number of reservations ever among the mirrorless interchangeable lens cameras released by Sony. All right, Sony marketing manager, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Nokai, uh, Nakai Maruyama. Sorry about that if I butchered it, which I'm sure I did. Here are a couple of interesting points. It had the largest number of reservations ever among mirrorless interchangeable lens cameras released by Sony. The response exceeded expectations. The ZV-1 is popular with young people in their 20s and 30s, and the ZV-E10 is popular with families in addition to this group. Compared to other cameras, the percentage of people who purchase a camera for the first time is very high. While he says uh, aimed at young people and camera beginners in order to boost the shrinking camera market, it seems that he was exactly right. He also said, quote, as smartphone functions continue to improve, the camera market will not improve dramatically in the near future. While giving a view to the market, there is a possibility that cameras will hit like the vlog cam series is said to be enough. Quote, I think it's important to coexist, not to compete with smartphones while trying to differentiate from them. The core of planning is a small size that is mainstream in the current camera market. It is a mirrorless interchangeable lens camera that is superior in lightweight. We have launched the mirrorless interchangeable lens camera equipped with full-size sensor ahead of other companies and are steadily gaining support. Taking advantage of these strengths, we will propose the value unique to a single lens reflex camera such as blurring and high resolution that cannot be easily expressed with smartphones. Details have not yet been decided, but it seems that the vlog cam series is expected to develop further. Quote, I would like to promote it as a series that is similar to Sony's standard digital single lens camera or the Alpha series and digital still camera Cybershot series, he concluded. So interesting there. I didn't realize that they were so successful with the pre-orders for the ZV-E10. And if I remember correctly, and you can correct me in the comments on the Facebook group if I'm wrong, but I think this camera was already discontinued by Sony. It was one of the cameras they decided to take out of production so they could use what little materials they could get, processors and stuff like that, on their newer higher-end cameras to remain profitable. So I think the ZV-E10 has already been taken out of production. So take from that what you will. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to conclude episode 265 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media. Hit the little bell icon so you can be notified as new content drops. Now, I did hint a little while ago, a few months ago, that I was probably going to do another giveaway contest sometime soon. And that will be starting in August. I haven't decided what date yet, but stay tuned to the show to find out more details. And I haven't decided yet what the prize will be. Maybe I'll do a poll like I did last time to see what the listeners are interested in the opportunity to win. Last time, everybody was interested in a good carbon fiber tripod. And so the show gave one away to one lucky winner. So stay tuned for that next contest, which will be coming in August, I assure you. And I want to thank you all once again for spending your time with me. And I will see you all again on Thursday.